said, from our bellies will flow the rivers of living water. Fruit is proof. Um, the proof of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And of course, uh, it would be great if it meant like, you know, I wish, you know, the, the, we are the world love, you know, like that nice feeling you get. But it's not, it's action. You know, the great poet Toby Mac um, <laughs> said it's a verb. Was that where that first came from? How about that? Ponder on that for a moment. It's a verb meaning that we do something about it. And what we do about it, the Bible is very clear, um, is that we act on it. And James says that part of that action would be caring for the orphans and the widows. And so what Conduit was born of was this idea that we would get together and we would get to know the Lord by studying his word. By, you know, where Bible study actually happens to study the Bible. And as you get to know the Lord in here, you get to be blown away by him. You fall more in love with him. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, and nine, when he's talking about giving an offering for the poor, for the saints in Jerusalem, that this was a test of their love. If you love the Lord, you'll do this. And you know, as you've all been to a, like a, a Jesus conference, right? Where I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you? You know, and then you shout on the other side. And everybody, if I were to say you love Jesus, everybody says yes. You're like, you have to love Jesus. But there's a, a litmus test for our love, for him, how profound it is. Because it, it would, nobody would argue with the fact that you love somebody, you can love people in, in amounts. Like I love this person differently than I love this person. You, know, you get that. Loving Jesus more means that we respond with our lives and with our resources, with our finances. And so Paul said giving an offering to the poor was that. And so what Conduit has been was us seeing our brothers and sisters in need, as it says in First John 5, I think. And we have means, and we, we respond to it. Now, the bad news is if I see somebody in Franklin, Tennessee, that is in need, and, and I technically don't necessarily have enough means to cover their rent. Do you know what I'm saying? But if I find somebody in Haiti, not that the Lord wouldn't call us to do that, but somebody in Haiti who has need, I got plenty of means to cover that. Fifteen bucks I can feed a kid for a month. I can do that. So if he who has means, anyway, so that, that's what conduit is. And we've given $85,000 away so far that have flowed through the conduit, this little nickel and dime operation has uh, seen all that go through. And if you want to see how the numbers are break down, you can go to the Facebook page and, and conduit and see the, to the penny where it goes. Um, we're a no secrets kind of organization. Um, it's updated through the end of the year. We haven't updated, I don't think, through this six months. But just know that we, uh, the joke is that we're, the, uh, we're God's toilet. We just flush his resources right into the system. And that's what will happen. If you give in, in a little offering here, great. We'll make sure that by this time next month, there's a kid in Haiti having breakfast on you. Um, and if you feel pressure to give, you don't have to. Because Paul says, if you feel pressure, don't. Um, it's really simple. It's just if, you, if, you, if this is where the Lord is leading you, absolutely we'd love to have you. If he's leading you someplace else, just do that as well. So all that to say, the way we get to know the Lord is in the word. And I've been a, a curious little word junkie for a long time. And I've found that the more time I spend in the word, the more blown away I am by the Lord, how big he is, how extravagant and amazing. And we just go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And tonight we find ourselves in Exodus 20. And it's a, a pr fairly profound one, um, especially if you've watched the news in the past three months. In it's chapter 20, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you guys next week. If, unless you're living under a rock somewhere, okay? Now, in fairness, some of you guys might be. It'd be impossible not to know that there are four little boys in South Carolina who wish their daddy had read that and, and stuck with the program. There are eight little kids in Pennsylvania who kind of wish their mommy and daddy wouldn't have 
done this, and especially on the TV. There are four little boys in Nashville, Tennessee, who don't have a daddy anymore, who might wish that their daddy would have abided by this. It's a really serious command. It makes it into the top ten. And I don't know, but I would bet my left arm, which I don't necessarily need that much, that I could ask you to raise your hands and who would be affected by adultery in this room. And I'll bet almost everybody in this room would say whether immediately, uh, indirectly, has been affected by it. Our, our lives in, in our house, not me or Shannon, but our family, we've seen it firsthand. I remember uh, being a teenager and seeing my youth pastor, who I thought was just the coolest guy in the world, uh, lose his marriage because of adultery. And I watched it happen to him again because he just didn't learn the first time. In fact, in the second proceeding, uh, he admitted to five affairs on that marriage. Don't commit adultery. And some of us might be thinking, I'm good on that one. You know, I've, I've said to my wife, if you're married to filet mignon, why in the world would you want to go run around with fried bologna? Right? And it's very romantic. Write the, somebody write that down, yeah. It's all about reaching the kids. Um, if only one kid is reached tonight from that statement, then it was all worth it. Um, the problem with that is Jesus. Jesus is the problem with a lot of things. He's actually the solution to it. You know what I'm saying? He kind of says to a guy like me, to maybe a guy or a girl like you, well, I appreciate your enthusiasm. Um, he says in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse... 17, he says, first of all, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. So these Ten Commandments, don't think I came to do away with those, okay? This adultery thing, that sticks. He says, but rather I've come to fulfill it. It's verse 17, chapter 5 in the book of Matthew. I've come to fulfill it. And if you were here last week, we talked about murder because Jesus turns murder on its head. And, and again, I'm thinking I'm clear because I've never killed anybody. Killed some things. Um, I grew up in Nebraska. That's what you do. You kill things. Um, I've grown soft in my old age because when I was back with my kids uh, about, I guess it was November, we had, I had a squirrel dead on in my sights of the pellet gun, and I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't kill I know, I'm, it's embarrassing. Don't, let's scratch that from the recording. But, but then Jesus goes on in verse 27 to turn adultery on its head. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Pretty strong statement from Jesus. Probably fairly shocking. There would have been 12 disciples standing there going, oh, geez, I'm screwed now. Because they, they would have known that, that, because first of all, they're looking at the Pharisees saying, that's the gold standard. And if they're not good enough to get into heaven, how on earth could I be good enough? Because Jesus is saying, this is the new litmus test for it, for the kingdom. He's saying to them, to you and to me, that this command is not something that we can keep. Ultimately, because it starts in our hearts. 
I heard a pastor say once that when he counsels people in divorce that 90% of the time when they've left, when they're getting ready to leave, that they've already got somebody else in their mind for the next step. And, and I know that's a subjective number. I've, I've not been involved in that before, but that was his statement. He said it was just, he sees it over and over again. They've committed it in their hearts. As a young man, as a young woman, if you've committed it in your heart. Now, the bad news for that is that, that kind of basically what Jesus is saying to you and to me is that we're all involved, at least on that level with it. We can't sit and throw rocks at somebody else because we're all in this together at that level. And of course, the beautiful thing is this. Now, Jesus... There's about 15 directions we could go with this, and, and I'm going to just give you my two cents worth, maybe three or four cents, and then I want to hear your stuff. So if you've got some thoughts, if you're listening tonight, even if you're taking a nap, if you have some thoughts when you wake up, um, know that we're going to have a moment where I want to hear from you guys and how this has affected your lives. But adultery, Jesus is saying, look, it's just an extreme problem, and this requires extreme action. I mean, obviously, he's not saying literally cut your hand off because the disciples would have been over there hacking their hands off, right? I mean, he's speaking in a metaphor saying this is an extreme problem. It requires extreme action. It requires, if you're a young man, if you're a, a grown man, it requires you to take extreme action, whether it's with your computer, whether it's with your eyes. What, extreme action, ladies. Don't let yourself get caught up in moments with some guy at work where you're talking to him about you, you know, the things of your soul. You know, it's... When Mark Sanford, the governor of South Carolina, said he started innocently, he said, as I suspect most of these things do. And I think he's right. I think that having a conversation where you're kind of pouring out your heart to someone who's not your husband, and a lot of you guys are single, so you're, just mark this for future. You're sharing of your soul. You're giving him something that belongs to your husband. Husbands, the same thing, to your wife. I think there's a reason why you can look at the Billy Graham organization I spent some time with an older gentleman named Larry Bracklin, good man of God. You know, it was a great conversation in Minnesota. But the things that they do are amazing. They're never alone with another female, ever. Another, or if you're a female, not with a male, ever, for any reason. Ever. You know, we, we represent some artists that they don't hug females. Um, it's just one of the things they've done. It's an extreme action, and I've watched them hurt some girls' feelings. Um, when they come up for a hug, and they're like, no, we don't hug. Um, you know, if you're 12, you're like, that's kind of confusing. But if you're a guy, and you're, if there are wives anywhere in America, they know that that night that they're not going to, because they've seen them do it. They've seen them hold each other accountable. It requires extreme action. And I think it requires extreme action because I don't think anybody means, and honestly, I, if I'm being honest, I don't even know how it happens. I don't know how a pastor climbs over a desk and ends up on top of a lady that isn't his wife. I don't know how that works. I mean, think about it. When I was single, I mean, it was just the first kiss was extremely awkward. You know, how, how do you... How do you get across that boundary? But here's the thing. I think that if, if you go into your life for the rest of your life with that attitude, you're setting yourself up for that kind of a failure. Because you're saying, I, it'll never happen to me. And I'm thinking Mark Sanford, maybe not Steve McNair, but other pastors. I mean, I was just having a conversation with a guy from a mega church in Oklahoma who said that they had just found out that the music pastor, when he left, he left because he'd had a was unfaithful to his wife, but they didn't say anything because the pastor's son who was on staff had been unfaithful to his wife and he had the dirt on him. And this coming from a church with a senior pastor has forever been rumored to be unfaithful to his wife. It's a church of 4,000 people. Now, I don't think any of those guys ever meant to do that. But maybe they didn't take the extreme action that, that, that we ought to be taking in our lives to protect and to safeguard ourselves from it. And... and 
And I think it's mostly because if you go to Ephesians 5, I think the reason that we see this over and over and over and over again, and I don't know, have you guys ever, how many have been in a church or around a church by showing your hands where this has happened in the church that you've been around? Like somebody that you know in a ministry position has, that's been their problem. And we've obviously, you, I mean, look no further than Ted Haggard, right, on the TV. Now, how embarrassing is that? Jim Baker, Jimmy Swigert. I mean, over and over and over again, you see this happening. But I think that what happens is that Satan holds a special place in his heart for marriage, specifically for ministries, specifically for pastor's kids. Because if he can break that apart, it tears everything apart. Because, and this is why, Ephesians 5, I think, Paul is talking about marriage. And you probably are familiar with this. He, he lays out the, how a wife should be with her husband. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which is, he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loves the church. So if you're a husband, you think, that means I get to be the boss? As Christ loves the church means that he's served. So as Christ loves the church, that's how you're going to be, you know, be the head of your household. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. In verse 31, for this reason will a man leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. And I love this part, verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. He's saying, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And in Romans 7, Verse 1, he says, this is Paul talking about the law. He says, an illustration for marriage is the subtitle, which is not inspired. Do you not know, brothers, for who I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. Paul is painting a picture of you and me saying that we're no longer married to the law because the law is dead, okay? Now he says the law isn't bad. He, in fact, he'll go on in chapter seven to say, if it weren't for law, I wouldn't even know about that, what coveting was. I know what it is now. And it isn't that the law is bad, it's that I'm bad. And it reveals that in me because I'm not married to the law anymore. I'm married to Christ, even though she marries another man. Talking about us married to Christ. Marriage itself, when you say to your husband, to your wife, is a covenant and it's a picture of Jesus' relationship to us. And so no wonder that Satan would hate it so much. No wonder. It's a big news flash, right? It, he can cause so much damage, not only in the family immediate, the children, the husband, the wife. He can cause damage to people around it. And he ultimately damages this picture. This picture that doesn't exist in any other setting, no other type of relationship does this exist in except for in a marriage that is a picture of Christ, whether it be 
a man with another man or a woman with another woman. It doesn't, that picture doesn't fit. This picture of a man and a woman fits into that picture of Christ. And in Mark, I know we're going to a lot of scripture, but there's just so much to be said on this from the word. I don't even have to give much commentary. Just let Jesus do the talking, right? It's a good idea in any setting. But Jesus in Mark 10 is talking about divorce. The Pharisees have come to test him. He said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he said, what did Moses command you? He replied, Jesus is so smart. Because if he had come in there and said, you know, well, well follow along and I'll, you'll see why he's smart. They said, Moses permitted a man to re- write a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this, you this law, Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is how it was to be. For this reason, a man would leave his father and mother, the words that Paul read later in Ephesians, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In Genesis 5, it says God looked at them and called them Adam. They were one flesh. It's a miracle. It's a mystery, Paul would say. And so the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Go with me to John 8. And then we're going to land, and I want to hear from you. Jesus was saying, as in the beginning, this is how it was to be. One man, one woman, and it says in Genesis 3 that they were naked, and unashamed. There was nothing, there was no guilt, there was no shame. They were one flesh together, the picture of God and his relationship to us. He said in the beginning, that was how it was to be. And everything else was because of our hard hearts. The way that Moses responded to it was a response to our hard hearts, to our wandering hearts. James says that it's because of our lust that we're drawn away. The things that happen in our hearts. And I want to land on this, and I want to end on this, John 8, because the problem is is that everybody in this room that raised your hand has been affected by this. And some of us, it's probably fair to say, might be a little bitter about it, might be a little hurt, a little angry, a little confused. And it says in verse 1 that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. I think the King James is in the very act of adultery is what it's saying. Most likely she would have been, I mean, when you're in the act of adultery, you are, you know, naked. Just drug her in to shame her. They uh, made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Not true. The The law of Moses commanded him to stone both of them. Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 22, I believe. So these guys, this was kangaroo court. This was not these guys looking for justice. It was them looking to bust Jesus. Teacher, this woman was caught. So verse 5, in the law, uh, verse, yeah, verse 6 there. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, 
until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there, the only one without sin, right? Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. The very same God, if you look in Exodus 30, I believe it says that it's with God's hand that he wrote the Ten Commandments. It's the finger of God that wrote these commands, these Ten Commandments. And I love it that here is the same God who's bent over on the ground with the same hand writing on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. I wonder if he was maybe writing each person's name. It says one at a time they were leaving. And next to it, maybe the sins in their life. And you see Darren, that sin next to my name. I'm like, I'm busted. He knows me. Jay, Ben, he's just one at a time. These sins are being written out and leaving. I don't know that that's it. We'll know someday when we get to heaven. But wouldn't it be appropriate? Whatever it was, it caused everybody to leave. And he looked at this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and he said, where are your accusers? And I think that it was so appropriate because she's standing there naked. And in the beginning, they were together, and they were naked and unashamed. And here's this woman who's standing by the groom, Christ, this new bride of Christ who is standing there naked and, as I wrote in my blog, maybe for the first time in her life, unashamed because she was forgiven. And I think that there's a picture there for us of how we are to respond to those in our lives that have committed this sin. In Romans 1, we go down that, especially in sexual sin, and we love it. And that, yeah. That we love it when, when someone is doing the big ticket sins because we can condemn them. We can throw rocks at them. We can write blogs about them. Or you're really lucky you can get one of those guys from Topeka to come out and pick at you and condemn you because of Romans 1, right? You don't have to turn there. I'll go there. But he talks about all these things of immorality that are definitely sin. Don't get me wrong. But we stop at Romans 1, even though you know that in the Bible the chapters and verses are not inspired. This is a thought that is continuing. When he talks about all of these sins, verse 32, it says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also prove those who practice them. You, therefore, us, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So that when you, a mere man, a mere woman, do this, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? I can't throw any rocks at people I can say that sin is sin. I believe that there are things that are absolute in the scriptures. And I believe that it is okay to declare something as sin. But when I'm declaring you the sinner, I don't know that I get a pass to do that. I look at the word and I say that I should be focusing more on God and his kindness and his gentleness. And that is what would lead me to repentance. 
and trust that God, who is perfect, will judge perfectly. It's faith, gang. It's us saying, I trust God more than I trust me. I'm gonna get it wrong anyway. I'm gonna judge him and I'm gonna blow it. I'm not gonna do it right. If I step back and say, God, this is your gig. You didn't make me Holy Ghost Junior. You don't need me running around you know, with my gavel declaring guilty. My job is to pray for them, to love them, to counsel, and to embrace the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. And that fits across many spectrums of sin. But specifically tonight, I believe it would qualify for those that have been involved, seen firsthand, had it done to you yourself. But at some moment, you have to say, God, that was wrong what they did to me. It's okay to acknowledge that and that hurt. But to hold on to it, it's not something that God meant for me to keep anyway. So if I give it to him, my life is better. And I just trust that he takes care of it. That's an ultimate act of faith. Moving forward, obviously, in our own lives, you know, I challenge every one of you, take dramatic and drastic action in your own lives to prevent this from happening to you. The time not to try to figure it out is when all of a sudden your heart is going pitter-patter to some other person besides your mate. The time is to have that way before that ever happens. Things in place where it doesn't happen to you. And for those that are affected by it personally in your own lives tonight, maybe you weren't the one, but you're the recipient of the pain. You know, I know it hurts and I know it sucks, but I know that God is big enough. And I know that we don't have to stand and throw rocks. And I'm just grateful that God has forgiven me for all the stupid stuff that I've done. You want fairness? I don't. I don't want God to be fair because I'm hosed if he is. I want mercy and grace and I want that for my family we experienced it in our own family. I want it for our family. Um, anyway, so that that's my 24 cents worth. I, I went over. What, I, mean, I don't even know where to start in this questioning because I feel like this would go 100 directions because everybody's been around it in your life. But I mean, when you experienced this in your life, I mean, what's, or what jumped out at you in the study tonight? What, what did you see or what did you come with the Lord already speaking in your heart with something like this? Nobody? How many are dealing with the pain of it right now, like the results of it in your own heart? Like I know we are. We have a, a brother, Shannon's brother, who's, you know, 20-something years old and who has uh, had a myriad of troubles in his life because of the, the results of this. You know, he was left to his own devices when he was 13 years old. You know, we deal with that. How do, what do we do about it? You know, we pray. We, we help financially sometimes. The results are long term. But what about you guys? Is it too tough of a subject? My, my, um, surprise is, um, I know what you're talking about today. And, uh, And it said it showed so many things in there that 
we need to prepare ourselves. Hmm. And I think that's what stuck out to me when you were talking to him, is that yes, we can go through life and they say, well, this is not applicable to me, and this is not, um, I don't have anything to do with this, and even my marriage is great, or even I'm single, adultery is nothing anywhere close to me. Mm-hmm. But it's um, knowing what you're going to do when you're going to know when to set your limits, what's your boundaries now, yeah. what, you know, if you're, you know, you, you have to really prepare yourself and understand what the word says about different situations and already have an answer or have a have an awareness of it because when a, a situation presents itself, you're most likely to be knocked off balance and not know how to react and then you react out of um, impulse or and say the wrong thing and you, you know, and you're like, you know, in regret later. Yeah. The proactivity, I think, ahead of time is so, and I know a lot of you guys aren't married. Some of you guys are dating. Some of you have been married. Some of you are married. But, I mean, it really is a proactive thing. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I never, ever would go alone to counsel with a female. Um, still don't do that. That's just something we do. Just, you know, we don't do. Because um, you've got somebody who's uh, vulnerable and, you know, I you just we don't even start there with that, you know. There's, and that's just one of many things, you know. But what else? I mean, do you young single guys think this was a waste of your time tonight because you don't have any problems with it? Or? <laughs> that's what I think is the most interesting is the when it says don't you know if you lust after uh, you know a woman in your heart you commit adultery. And I think the biggest issue for I know myself and just like I think our culture and just American Christianity in general is I don't think you or I, Darren, when we see someone who's attractive and we take a second look and we're like, wow, that person is very attractive. And that, that kind of just like rush comes over you or whatever. Um, we don't really feel like we're committing adultery. Right. You know, there's just, I just don't. Yeah. You know, and I think that because we're not really taking God at his word and we live in such a culture that's just like not that big of a deal. Like, I'm faithful to my wife. Like, yeah. You know, Huge and I think that that's where, for me, if I really understood the fact that I'm truly committing adultery on my life when mm-hmm. that happens, and how sick and perverse and wrong and shameful that is to God and to be to myself, right? That's where I feel like you know I fail in my life, and I don't want to be that kind of person because that's something no one you know sees, yeah. But it's something that's in your mind, yeah. And it's everywhere, yeah. I mean. I go to the gym. Now, the good news is, is all the, you know, the, the, the ladies took it up to Prairie Home Fitness, so I don't have to worry about that. But the TVs, you know, all around, they've got the videos going. And occasionally, you know, I, I basically work out at the time when basically all the middle-aged, divorced real estate agent guys are in there getting buff. It's because they're back on the market again. And, and some soccer moms and then me. And so, but, you know, I mean, I wouldn't go to the gym. I've been there once in the night. I'm like, you know what, I don't want to be part of this because it's there. And, and interestingly enough, one of the number one places to find yourself in a situation, especially as a female, is with your personal trainer. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, but it's just a fact. The gym, but all that to say, for me in the gym, you know, that's a place where I'm, I'm going to absolutely be, you know, up, look in the sky, you know. Um, because you're right, we have to think of it in that terms that this is not something that's a wink and a nod, you know, to the Lord. There's a book for, especially young guys, called Every Man's Battle. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that. And if you have read it, read it again. 
Um, it's a great book. And I think what it does is it makes you, number one, realize, oh, I'm a guy. And number two, realize that that's still no excuse. Um, I don't get a pass on that. God did not make me an animal. Um, I'm in his image. And if you want to uh, take it to where Paul takes it, he says, when I do these things in immorality, I am marrying Christ to that woman. Jesus is in bed with you. How about that? Gives you the heaps. <laughs> what else? You young married couples, what do you think? There's a few of you. Not many, though. That's hmm. one of the biggest problems is that when you're in hmm. conversation, you're talking to a guy and you're like, well, yeah, you know, you know, me and my girl, we were at home or whatever, and there's nobody around. And it, instead of the initial instinct to flee or the discipline being put in there, it's just like, well, and then, you know, maybe something happened, you know, and then, you know, you just carry on with the day. And it's like, well, why, why the initial instinct was to leave that situation, why wasn't that followed through? Hmm. You know? And if you know that your heart is plotting evil, then why wouldn't you want yeah. to quell that in, from the get-go instead of becoming after the fact and yeah. like, well, well, why are you letting your, why doesn't let that happen and why are you continuing that situation? If you know that there's something wrong, why, where, where is the correction? Then? Yeah. You know? I think what's amazing about it is that the Bible uses these crazy terms like, like flee from it, run. Exactly like a wild animal chasing you, okay? Or cut your hand off, gouge your eye out. I mean, these are extreme statements to kind of shock us into that this is something that we have to be shocking about to make well, it happen. I don't think you use extreme terms if there weren't extreme consequences. Exactly, absolutely. <laughs> and, the, and the thing is, is that, I mean, look, and we're not here to, well, I guess you can't hardly not talk about one without the other, but not... I'm not here to talk about necessarily fornication tonight, but when you do that with someone who isn't your wife or your husband, you have the Bible says you have joined those souls together. It's a mystery. Whenever you counsel a young couple and they're just absolutely distraught, okay, when they're breaking up with each other, you pretty much tell that they have been intimate with each other because their souls are connected at this point, and it'll never be the same after that. This is an extreme thing. It isn't that God is you know no fun; it's He knows what's happening. This is something mystical that's spiritual. You know, it isn't just for procreation. It isn't just for Calvin Klein ads. It is a spiritual act. <laughs> Jay, what's going on in your smart brain? Uh, there's a verse in Timothy that says, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace, and enjoy the companionship of those who call the Lord with pure hearts. Another translation says who are earnestly Enjoy the company of those who earnestly seek the Lord. That's the second half of the verse. The first half of the verse is flee also youthful lusts. And, um, and I, I think I've said this here before, but growing up, I only ever heard the first half of that verse. Hmm. I only heard the run away part. I, nobody ever said what to run towards or run to. And I, and I think if you part of this issue, there, there's two 
sort of the biblical parts of the solution. One is to to be in the company of those who are earnestly pursuing the Lord, which sort of builds in this sense of, you know, if you're in a relationship with people, there's a natural accountability that's happening. Sometimes the problem with accountability partners and, and that type of verbiage that we've sort of come accustomed to is that it, it's not really natural. Yeah. It's like, okay, you tell me what you did and I'll tell you what I did and, and we'll laugh about it and uh, we'll see you next week, you know. And it, it's not like a natural relationship. But if we're earnestly pursuing the Lord together in communion, that's going to happen naturally. And the other thing that you and hmm. I were kind of talking about earlier is uh, that, yeah, this is a, a hard issue. Um, you know, when Jesus is restating the commandments, right, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others, right? There's this hard issue. And Ezekiel is a prophecy that says, uh, and he's talking to the, the, specifically at that moment, Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of Israel, saying, that in the day, your heart will be replaced, right? And so prophecy, the thing about prophecy is that it, has, it kind of gets fulfilled again and again and again in different ways. But I think that there's, Jesus re-says this in a different way to us about how really it's his job to replace and renew our heart. And so the only way to love God with all of our hearts and mind and strength is to really let God replace our heart and to renew it and to restore it. And so as we're letting him do that and then sending that love back in this cycle, that combats. You know, the, the, uh, the word in Exodus for adultery built into that in the Hebrew is also a call to not abandon your faith, um, your sort of relationship with God, your intimacy with God, it's both with your wife and with the Lord. And so I think from the very beginning, these the, the idea of abandoning your faith and, and committing adultery or lust or any of these other symptoms, you can't separate the two. The only time that those happen is when you're abandoning some part hmm. of your relationship, when you stop, we, we said this earlier, stop knowing God, right? Part of what we're called to do is to know God and to have him know us. And, and biblically, those words mean intimacy, they mean relational intimacy as in marriage. So, I don't know, those are just kind of some of the things that are spinning around, but there's this call that it's a matter of, it sort of takes the pressure off. Like, there's a whole lot of striving when it comes to trying to not lust, and to not commit adultery, and to not, 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 but really it's more of a proactive thing of like, being in community and continually letting God replace your heart. I think it was Luke actually shared with me one point, you know, you can't just take one thing out without replacing it with something else. And I think it's a big secret in our lives. You know, we've, we're not replacing it with, you know, whether it's in the church or in the body, or I believe personally in service for the kingdom. I mean, when you're in Haiti, let me tell you what, it's not easy. You know, you're or Africa or wherever. I mean, we're serving the kingdom on a Sunday morning out in the, like our church does or whatever. Um, your hands are dirty. You're surrounded by poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed, you're not really thinking dirty thoughts. You're thinking serve, love, the king. You know what I mean? It's like, if I'm replacing it with those things, it's like, if I'm so busy thinking about what not to do as opposed to not thinking about what I could be doing in this place. And again, when I grew up, it was like, well, you had to read your Bible every day and pray. And you know, how did you set your alarm the first day? And you might make it. And the next day, you might not. And you know what I mean? But if you're not, if you're doing that instead of like, you know, 
absolutely proactively serving the Lord in the kingdom. Whether and I know it sounds cheesy, whether it's in a nursing home, in a you know a, a homeless shelter, in your own church, wherever. When you're surrounded by believers serving the kingdom, man, it's a community thing at that point. So for whatever that's worth, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I was like uh, every other teenager, um, boy. And, but I remember I got back to, I was in Guatemala for almost two months. And I remember coming back thinking, man, I hardly struggled at all while I was down there, you know? And I was so busy doing work, whether it was at the kingdom or not, I suppose it's debatable by some people because, you know, we're doing, just doing skits and stuff, but but I didn't worry about any of that stuff because I was so busy for the Lord, for the kingdom. I didn't think about those things. And it was, it was a lesson that I've learned over and again, you know, so for what that's worth. There's that verse in Proverbs 16, 9, which says, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. Hmm. And I always was like, hmm. that was so weird because I always thought, like, commit my you know, thoughts to the Lord. I'm going to be serving the Lord and I'm Interesting. those things which are good. But when you actually commit your works to the Lord and you start serving them out of faith, huh. the thoughts will follow. Isn't that interesting? Afterwards. It's Proverbs 16.9 for those that didn't catch that. Think. If not, Google it. You'll find it. <laughs> and, uh, Save your money on fancy Bible software. Just Google. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really crazy how that, how that works in, in your own life. So you're saying that. So true. Lord, you do stuff. And I, yeah. I always thought it was weird when like, you think of, like, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you actually read why, you know, the Lord destroyed it. I always thought it was because they were so perverse, and they were committing all these sick, you know, things. But it actually says in uh, Ezekiel that their sin was um, idleness of time, and was, uh, they weren't giving to the poor. And, That's right. Um, I forgot about that. One. And it was just really weird. It didn't mention any, like, sexual sin or anything like that. Just like you're saying. Yeah, I remember that. The heart. I always thought that was so strange. It's just like, you're destroying someone because they have idleness of time in their lives. And because they, you know, are actually uh, not giving of their lives yeah. to help those in need. And it's so true. It's the same thing. When we do get idle and we're not giving out, that is when our lives just start falling right. apart. And I think to be clear... I think that's what it's really interesting. It would say like idleness of heart, you know, um, not giving to the poor, those things, because there are a lot of pastors that probably feel like they were doing the work of the ministry that fell into this. And I remember the guy that told me this, he, and a lot of times you hear some of the greatest truths from the people that are struggling with these sins themselves, right? But he said, if you fall in love with anything more than you're in love with Jesus, including the ministry, then you're, your heart is out of order and you're setting yourself up for a fall. And this was a guy that, had five affairs in a second marriage and one was first. He's in love with ministry. And and I say ministry, I say that more as the career choice ministry as I get to have an office and a gig as opposed to ministry to service. And specifically to, and I, I can't get away from it over and over and over again whenever you see works listed, whether it's James or Zeke, whatever, it talks about that specifically in service to those that are poor and oppressed and marginalized and um, there's just honest to goodness. There's nothing like it, you know. It's and I'll, I'm, I wrote that down. Hopefully, it's Proverbs 69. But we'll anyway. Sixteen-three. You were close. I mean, you were within striking distance. You were within one percent away or either side. So you get it. Anything else? It's eight forty-four. I know we went a little late, but it was I think worth it. Any closing thoughts from anyone? 
Um, looking for something to put offering in. We'll put Luke's. Oh, we're just gonna say we'll open Luke's guitar case and he'll play. He'll take the on the way out. Um, obviously, if the Lord has moved on you uh, tonight, a great way to respond is with giving. Um, and when you say giving to the poor, we literally give it all away. Um, we're at like 96% that's been given away. And I was looking at it, really one of the major expenses we have is the PayPal expense. If we could make that go away, we'd almost have, we'd be at 100%. We just can't, you know, they charge us to take that. And it's for convenience and we get it. But um, if you've been thinking about uh, sponsoring one of our little boys and girls in Haiti, it's um, 32 bucks a month. You can do that online and know that you've actually um, have like this child that there's a relationship with that you'll, you could go and meet with us. Um, I've met some of them and it's awesome. A little hot for my tastes, but awesome. I've, uh, I've told the Lord, I'll, I, I surrender all and I'll go to Haiti anytime except for from uh, what, May till October. <laughs> Other than that, I surrender all. <laughs> I'm going into... <laughs> I mean, it was like the hottest, I've, this guy, anyway. So, uh, uh, we, we literally give it all away. I mean, nobody gets paid here. And I don't say that as any sort of a whatever. It just is the truth. Um, it isn't that it's wrong to get paid ministry. This is just the way that God has set up conduit. So um, if you want to be a part of that, pray about it. Seek the Lord. Um, I know the kids are grateful. And on behalf of them, thanks. Uh, and if you don't give here, give somewhere. So for what it's worth. Uh, next week, we'll be back. We're going to knock out these commandments yet. And then there's going to be a test. Just kidding. There won't be a test. So next week, 7.30, um, if you're not on our email...